I got a question. Sure. How long is this going to take? It shouldn't take a whole lot longer. Do you think I can get there before 129? Um, probably not. What's at 129? Well, I had a project doing since This is the story of the wrongful conviction of Brendan Dassey. Over the next seven episodes, we re-examine and explore the influences at the heart of this profound miscarriage of justice. Welcome to the sixth hour. under the weight of the wrongful conviction of a Mishkot High special ed student who had gone to school on February the 27th, 2006 as an innocent 16-year-old kid only to be catapulted into adulthood at the hands of local law enforcement when he left as a suspect in one of Wisconsin's most notorious criminal investigations. This miscarriage of justice is Brendan's story. Petition for executive clemency on behalf of Brendan Dassey. This petition asks Wisconsin Governor Tony Evers and his Pardons Advisory Board to grant Brendan either a pardon or a commutation based on Brendan's actual innocence as well as the extreme length of his sentence. October the 2nd, 2019, Brendan Dassey's legal team filed a petition for clemency, asking Governor Tony Evers to grant Brendan a pardon or commute his life sentence to time served. A coalition of almost 250 voices signed an open letter supporting the petition, many of whom are US government officials, legal experts and scholars, and those who know the pain and the solitude of a wrongful conviction only too well a cohort of exonerees. Governor Evers stated that he believed in forgiveness and the power of redemption, and when pressed whether he planned on granting not just pardons, but also clemency or even reprieves, he replied possibly, but that he was leaving the pardons advisory board itself to make those types of decisions. You have to believe in redemption and giving people a second chance, Evers spouted to journalists. Yet, what if you haven't been given your first chance? What if there is no crime that demands your redemption? What if you simply ended up in the Wisconsin correctional system because of a miscarriage of justice? Like Brennan Dassey. Clemency is not a surrogate for a malfunctioning criminal justice system. The US Supreme Court considers pardons to be a failsafe, 
a remedy even to correct systemic failures in the courts and in the absence of legislative change. The ultimate act of executive grace. Yet, it is wildly truant in practice. The Wisconsin Constitution empowers the governor with the sole authority to grant clemency, with sweeping discretion. There is no statutory advisory process in Wisconsin, and Governor Evers is not bound by any constitutional standard and is empowered with unfettered discretion to grant or deny Brendan Dassey clemency. In May of 2019, Evers, in discussion, when told that he was giving a lot of people hope by opening up the clemency conversation, and when asked was that his intention replied, absolutely. And not having hope when you should have hope is the wrong thing for the state of Wisconsin to stand for. Yet, where is the hope for the wrongfully convicted? Where is the hope for those with claims of actual innocence? Wisconsin once held a gilded tradition of clemency, used for those with claims of actual innocence. Yet the current criteria suggest a reluctance to embrace the true spirit of clemency and the notion of mercy. Brendan Dassey is an ideal petitioner for clemency. Not only does it offer mercy in this case, but it provides justice. And while the political partisanship of Wisconsin's legislator may be divisive, it cannot impede the clemency process or dictate or shape the criteria that need to be met. Yet here we are in 2020, and Brendan Dassey remains wrongfully incarcerated for a crime he did not commit, held captive by a state and court system that failed him. A conviction resulting from the painful extraction of a false confession at the hands of coercive interrogation techniques, techniques based on unscientific and universally rejected behaviour symptom analysis. Courage and clemency are equal virtues, and when the Wisconsin courts and the Seventh Circuit Court en banc majority fail to protect the innocent, vulnerable, and overwhelmingly misrepresented Brendan Dassey, clemency was called upon. Imagine all of this, because the Wisconsin court system failed. In this episode of The Sixth Hour, I am joined by Professor Mark Osler, a former federal prosecutor and one of the foremost legal scholars and authors in the United States on clemency. He is a law professor at the University of St. Thomas School of Law in St. Paul, Minnesota, where he holds the Robert and Marion Short Distinguished Chair in Law. His writing on clemency, sentencing, and narcotics policy can be found in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Atlantic, and in law journals at Harvard, Stanford, Northwestern, and in many other notable publications. Professor Osler consulted on and featured in Brendan's clemency announcement as not only an authority, but as a supporter of Brendan's petition and his fight for justice. Thank you.
welcome to the sixth hour professor osler thank you so much for joining me to discuss clemency and why brendan dassey is a fitting recipient of such an act of grace yeah well it's my pleasure to be here thank you so a prevailing thread throughout your significant body of work is the recurring theme of mercy within the criminal justice system i read that early in your career you had been a process server and this had helped shape your road forward. Was that the watershed moment that initiated your commitment and advocacy for clemency policy? No, it was the start of the path towards being a, a lawyer. Um, you know, I, I did that job in Detroit. And what I found that was so compelling to me was that in law, there's these great stories that uh, law enters into people's lives at their weakest moment and when they're most vulnerable. And that means there's an incredible responsibility that goes with it. Um, so I'd never really thought about going to law school, but at that point I did. And I, I went off to law school and I went to law school at Yale and had a lot of people around me who were, had big plans of things they wanted to do. Um, and I, I decided I wanted to be a prosecutor. And that surprises a lot of people about my history. But in, in part because I saw the opportunity that prosecutors can have to make things better, to reject bad cases for one thing. Um, I went back to Detroit and I was a federal prosecutor there for five years. And it was really during those five years that this idea that on the one hand we have justice, that uh, to a lot of people means treating people like people similarly, fairness. But the other hand you have mercy which allows us to break from that, to uh, show grace towards people, to change our mind, to allow them to change. Eventually that led me to, to leave that job and to enter the academy uh, to a place where I could speak more freely about this and, and, and advocate for things that would propel this idea of human dignity within the whole of the criminal process. Yeah, that's quite something. You're also an avid blogger and somewhat of a haiku master. Well, I'm not the master. I, I just <laughs> invite people who are haiku masters to, uh, to enter theirs on, on my blog, which makes for an exciting Friday. Yeah. So clemency is a, it's a somewhat complex issue. Perhaps it's not widely understood due to its absenteeism from the criminal justice system. Can you expand a little on the history of clemency and the role it can play in providing relief where the courts fail to. Yeah, I mean, one thing about clemency is it, it's as old as the law. As long as we've had judgments that are to apply to everybody, we've also had an outlet for mercy. It's in the Code of Hammurabi. You know, for Christians, as they go through Holy Week, one of the things that they see is that uh, clemency is considered for Jesus. Pilate chooses between Jesus and Barabbas. Uh, the Romans had a goddess of clemency, Clemencia. And this, this extends, uh, you know, through the, the British antecedents to American law and to Australian law, where we have uh, the kings and the queens of England had the power of clemency. It was something that was controversial uh, within British culture as well. You had themes of mercy and clemency specifically in art and in literature, 
uh, Shakespeare's the theme of mercy is is throughout Shakespeare, and he even wrote an entire play about clemency, clemency specifically, measure for measure. So we have um, we have it right up there to the settling of the United States. And one of the things that's remarkable at the U.S. Constitution is that they took out the role of kings in almost every regard, but they left this one, which is clemency. In our history, the first president to use clemency was the first president, George Washington. And he used it uh, for men who were convicted to, to be executed, uh, sentenced to be executed for the Whiskey Rebellion, which was in Western Pennsylvania. Um, he, in fact, as the commander in chief, was riding at the head of the militia that was going to take them down when they, when they uh, collapsed. And yet he pardoned their sentences. So there's, there's this remarkable cultural, political, and legal history behind clemency up to the modern day. And, and when we let it fall away or we ignore it or when we harden our hearts to it, as I think we've seen with, with Brendan Dassey, mm. what we're rejecting is a, a part not only of the law but of our culture. Yes. And when executive clemency is granted, what type of forms can it take? Yeah, we see three basic forms. There's, there's others that, that don't come up very often, but the, the three basic ones are a pardon, which is going to get rid of the effects of the conviction. It's as if the person wasn't convicted in the eyes of the law in many respects. The second is a commutation of sentence where the conviction stays in place but the sentence is shortened. And then the third is a reprieve, which is like setting the pause button on a sentence. And we usually see reprieves in death penalty cases in the United States where reprieve is granted to allow further legal consideration. Uh, with Brendan, over time, we've seen consideration of both a pardon and a commutation. One of the men convicted in the murder of Teresa Halbach wants the governor to let him out of prison. Brendan Dassey's team filed a petition for clemency. Sean Gallagher shows us why Dassey's team thinks it's time for him to be released. Brendan Dassey turns 30 years old in just a few weeks, but he's been in prison since he was 16. But now his defense team hopes that this petition will get him out a lot sooner. Today, we are filing a petition for executive clemency on behalf of Brendan Dassey. Laura Nyrider is one of the attorneys for Brendan Dassey. She says the popularity of the Making a Murderer docuseries was partly because of what happened to Brendan. This case is a profound miscarriage of justice. The crux of their argument stems from Brendan's interrogation. They say because of his limited IQ and mental capacity, he just said what police wanted to hear. Police trainer David Thompson says he uses the video to teach officers what not to do in an interrogation. The most gut sickness you have from an interrogation, um, and any time that you have an innocent person uh, convicted of a crime they didn't commit, that, that has to be defined as the worst interrogation you've seen. The petition for clemency is looking for two things, to pardon Brendan Dassey and commute his sentence. In essence, Governor Tony Evers could grant him his immediate freedom, but it could leave the convictions on his record. So we're hopeful that Governor Evers, when he looks at Brendan, when he hears the support of organizations like the Milwaukee Teachers Education Association, when he hears disability experts speak about Brendan's special education history, he'll recognize the vulnerabilities that Brendan brought to that interrogation room. Dassey's attorney says no matter what happens with this decision, it won't have an impact on the Stephen Avery case. In Madison, Sean Gallagher, today's TMJ4. 
Governor Evers' office says it's received the petition and they give every pardon application careful review and consideration. But according to the Pardon Advisory Board, it could take several months or over a year before Dassey's case is actually reviewed. October the 2nd last year, Brendan's team filed a petition for clemency with the governor of Wisconsin. How did you come to be involved in that clemency push? Well, I, I had worked with the people at Northwestern before, with Laura and Steve, and they reached out to me because of my history with clemency. I really wasn't familiar with Brendan's case. And so uh, that was my invitation to, to look into it. Unlike a lot of people, I hadn't seen making a murder. So, but once I looked at it, it was so compelling. Mm. Yeah. Do you believe Brendan to be a model petitioner for the type of mercy provided by clemency? And what factors would you consider in making that determination? I think that he's an excellent, uh, he's an excellent candidate in some traditional ways and also in a, a non-traditional way. And let me explain that. The traditional ways is that usually clemency is granted to people if they're incarcerated and, and pardons when they're uh, out of prison, if there's been a significant change in their life, uh, if they've had a good, strong prison record and things like that, um, that there's a, a reformation that's occurred. Uh, and, and certainly, it, Brendan Dassey is someone who's been a model prisoner in many ways. What's different about his case is that you don't have the same kind of uh, firm conviction that you usually see. I mean, here, there's, a, there's so much that was wrong at the trial level in the investigation that that isn't firm, that that isn't solid ground. Um, yeah. And so it's not just, okay, is this someone who's safe to live amongst us now who's earned a form of mercy? But there's also questions about whether he should have been punished in the first place. Absolutely. Wisconsin's first pardons board, they were established in around 1935. And they determined the type of cases that they would redress would include petitioners who would probably be safely paroled if, if the sentence was reduced and only after careful consideration of the judicial history of the case, which obviously has not been the case for Brendan. So to great disappointment, Governor Evers chose to reject Brendan's petition just before Christmas of last year without review. Can you explain the current criteria in Wisconsin and your thoughts on why the board was adverse to even reviewing the petition? Yeah, and it has to do with the political history of Wisconsin. The, the constitution of the state gives the governor broad powers to grant clemency. Now, uh, governors have used that very differently. The predecessor to Governor Evers, a man named Scott Walker, Governor Walker uh, was a Republican and he did not like the idea of clemency at all. And so um, he allowed the Board of Advisors on clemency to lapse. He didn't appoint anybody to those positions and he didn't grant any clemency for the eight years that he was in office. Now, one thing to understand is that when we talk about that pardon board, they're not the ones who make the decisions. The Constitution leaves it just up to the governor. But the governor has the option of creating a board like that to um, help make decisions. And 
Scott Walker having decided, well, I'm not going to grant clemency to anybody. I don't need a board to tell me that. Let it go. So when Governor Evers was elected, people were optimistic that he would have a more progressive view towards uh, clemency. The problem is that, as we often see in these situations, he was, he was really timid. And so what he did was two things. He reconstituted the Board of Advisors, which is understandable. But the other thing that he did is he allowed the, or directed the, those board, that board to only consider cases where someone had already been out of prison for five years and said, mm. these are the kinds of cases I'll look at, that you were convicted, you did your time, and you've been out for five years, and now we'll talk about a pardon. And, you know, barred from consideration, basically, cases of commutation or pardons before the five years. It's completely arbitrary. Uh, you know, the governor had the power to grant clemency, but mm -hmm. just chose these strict limits that were, frankly, pretty much made up. Um, I'd note that, you know, I'm in the next state over in, in Minnesota, and we have a similar structure here where everything's skewed towards looking at candidates who have been, have completed their term, have been out for five years. But that's under reconsideration now. We've drafted a bill in we've got a good chance of getting that change so that we won't face the same problem here. And is it that public opinion can help sway that criteria or, or do you feel you touched on, you know, the political environment, so to speak in Wisconsin and obviously issues with partisanship. Do you think that shackles the current criteria for fear of blowback? It does. And you know, that political timidity is pretty familiar to those of us that, that work in clemency. Even with uh, President Barack Obama, when he was elected, uh, he didn't grant any commutations of sentence for the first four years he was president, which is pretty mm -hmm. remarkable, um, given that he's somebody who did have a heart for those who were incarcerated, um, went to visit a prison, so it, and you know, eventually, in year six of his presidency, he started to address clemency and and did grant a significant number of commutations. But that political timidity comes largely from a particular point in American politics. And that's when George H.W. Bush was running against Michael Dukakis. And uh, this was the first President Bush. And his his campaign team discovered that there was a prisoner in Massachusetts when Dukakis was governor there who had gotten a furlough. It really wasn't, it wasn't even clemency. And during the furlough, he'd committed a murder. And his name was Willie Horton. And they read an ad that many considered racist, I do, that showed Willie Horton's face and talked about what happened and claimed Dukakis let him out. And that meant that politicians, and particularly Democratic politicians like Evers, have been scared ever since of having the ad like that run against them. Yeah, it does seem to be from an outsider looking in very much something that governors tend to do in a flurry before mm -hmm. they leave their term. Yeah, and it wasn't always that way. If you look historically, you know, at, at clemency in the United States, where it functions and when it functions, it's pretty evenly spread out. And And one thing that's interesting is that we often see the most use of clemency by fairly conservative governors that in uh, places like Arkansas and Georgia and South Carolina, 
you'll mm -hmm. see fairly regular grants of commutation in a way that you don't in Minnesota and Vermont that are considered much more liberal. Yeah. Would that be because of perhaps death penalty cases in certain areas? Or? No. And in fact, those those grants don't have to do with the death penalty usually. Um, yep. there, are, there are people who are serving regular sentences that are completed them. Uh, you know, Mike Huckabee was the governor of Arkansas, and he was somebody who, who regularly granted clemency. And for him, uh, it was a faith imperative, is what he often cited. Yeah. So, uh, you know, faith imperatives can take us a lot of places, but in that instance, it allowed him to do something that, sadly, uh, more progressive governors in other ways, like Evers, are afraid to, to do. Yeah. The history of clemency documents that as most recently in, in Wisconsin, as it relates to Wisconsin, as recently as 2009, a petitioner convicted of homicide was granted a pardon. Then in 1995, we have a petitioner convicted of first degree intentional homicide was granted a commutation after serving one year of incarceration. Yet there's no rectification for those with claims of actual innocence. Mm -hmm. Is this more a moral than legal issue, do you think? Well, yeah, I mean, part of it is kind of a, a philosophical one, that what you hear decision makers say is that innocence should be determined by the courts. The problem is that the ability to contest innocence is often not dealt with uh, in a very straightforward way by the courts. And we saw that in Brendan's case, that, uh, you know, you saw the appeals come to an abrupt and sad halt in a way that didn't seem to give fair uh, consideration to the interrogation that he underwent and things like that. Um, and so it's unfortunate, but I think the primary reason that you see innocence not considered as a basis for clemency is because, uh, the executive branch wants to defer to the legislature or to the um, judicial branch in resolving that. Yeah, it kind of defeats the purpose of being able to grant mercy. It it does, and of course, you know, in a case where if the person is genuinely innocent, um, you know, it's not mercy; <laughs> it's just straight yes. up justice. So yes. we do have to make that point of differentiation here. That in a in case like Brendan's, you can make the case for his release, either on mercy or justice. A hundred percent. And I think that's something that, that struck me when I was looking into clemency and, and reading back over the clemency petition was that Brendan's asking for something that he shouldn't have to ask for, that should have found him through the mm -hmm. courts. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, the more fail-safes we have, to make sure that liberty isn't unfairly deprived, the better. And that's really why I have a problem with that construction of, well, if it's an innocence question, it needs to be dealt with by the courts. Is that sometimes the rules we give the courts and the standards that the courts employ are not going to give fair consideration to actual innocence or to problems with investigation. Yeah, absolutely. And we see that with statutes such as EDPA which present huge barriers for petitioners. Mm -hmm. Exactly.
Noon now, Brendan Dassey will not receive a pardon from Governor Tony Evers. The governor denied Dassey's request by saying he does not meet parole board requirements to be released. According to the news release, Evers is not considering requests for commutation. Do you feel that clemency is still a, a viable option to relief for Brendan? It could be. Um, you know, it's so hard to have it have been denied without real consideration. And I'm hoping that over time that Governor Evers sees what the problem is with the shackles he's put on clemency with that, you know, you have to have been out for five years before we even look at your case. That that's that's cutting to the heart of what clemency is supposed to be. It's cutting against the spirit of it. Um, and it may be that there's some other case that breaks that wall down, or it could be that he reconsiders it. Or it could be that he's elected to a second term and uh, that timidity fades away the way we saw with President Obama. Or it could be that someone else is elected governor and has a different take on things. So yeah. it definitely is possible. There's a quote of Governor Evers from May last year. He said that it's for people that have either served time or are already out or are in prison now that are seeking some change in their life situation. We are pretty open about that. That was in May, but yet we get, you know, a petition in front of him that speaks to that statement. And as you said, it's not even reviewed on its merits. Yeah. And I, I suspect that, you know, this is the case that made them choose whether they were going to have that broader view or not. And it's, it's sad that so often it turns out this way. We know that, um, you know, I don't know what the deliberations were with, with Governor Evers and his advisors. We know something about what happened with, with President Obama, which is that at the start of his first term, there were those in the administration who pushed for a vigorous clemency program. But there were political advisors who said, it's too big a risk and there's no upside to it, which is really sad because in the end, doing what's morally right is always an upside. Uh, yes. And I regret the fact that we have so many politicians who deny that basic truth. And particularly at the moment in a world that perhaps needs mercy so desperately mm -hmm. in, in so many ways. And you have individuals who are, who are able to, to grant, you know, such an act of grace yeah. who don't. That to me is such a foreign thought. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and it has to do with with principles that um, you know. No, no matter what democracy you live in, it's it's a challenge that we elect these people who wanted to be elected. <laughs> if you follow me, that that there there are people who uh, have constructed their lives in a way that people will vote for them. But that what comes with that is that moral timidity, the inability to follow their conscience when it takes them to some place of political risk. And I, I wish that for someone like Governor Evers, who's, uh, you know, he's probably not seeking further office beyond this, be fully moral in what you do now and take that risk. Um, it, would, it would definitely, in the end, be remembered better than the timidity that he's shown. Absolutely. Just touching on your advocacy for sentencing policies, what are your thoughts on mandatory sentencing for juveniles when they're tried as adults in the courts? 
Yeah, that's deeply troubling. And it's, it's something that is rooted in a historical moment that uh, is long past, which was, you know, the mid 1980s, there was this false idea that both Republicans and Democrats embraced that there were super predator kids who were, had, were psychopaths and would never get beyond uh, criminality, which when you think about it, that's crazy. <laughs> and, and it's so arrogant in a way to say that we know what's going to happen in someone else's life in 40 years, what they're yeah. going to be like. Certainly none of us say that about ourselves that, oh, well, you know, 40 years from now, I'm going to be exactly like I am now. Uh, yeah. All the bad traits I might have, I'll have then. No, we give ourselves a chance to change and be different. But there was this irrational certainty that children who did bad things were never going to change. Uh, and there was never a scientific basis for that. And as we've learned more about brain science, it's actually the opposite that's uh, shown to be true. Yeah. And if you could draft and, and pass policy in the clemency space as it applies to petitioners like Brendan with claims of actual innocence, what would that look like? Yeah. I mean, well, first of all, it's not, you know, legislation doesn't come into play in something like Wisconsin system. But if I was to uh, change the governor's policy, I think mm. what I would do, first of all, would be have, have a a few investigators, you know, have people, not people who were affiliated with law enforcement, but, um, you know, independent investigators who would report on the case, who would dig into these things, who would tell us the kind of things that unfortunately we had to rely on filmmakers to do, um, yes. to, to bring facts to the fore. And that idea that to investigate something like this, we go back to the exact apparatus that produced the bad result in the first place um, is absurd. That there needs to be a different route to truth. And one of the things with Brendan's case that is probably not as aberrational as we think is that once somebody looked at it closely from outside of the criminal justice system, it fell apart. And part of the key to doing that is that objectivity of having an examiner who's not a part of the system that produced the bad result in the first place. So that is what I would change. <laughs> Something like conviction integrity units, for example, mm -hmm. Wisconsin could certainly benefit from, I think. Yeah. In many States. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So thank you so much, Professor Osler. Do you have any last thoughts you, you'd like to share on Brendan's continued fight for justice? Yeah, and, and it's this, that, you know, Brendan is a symbol. He's a symbol of the things that go wrong. He's not the only child who is treated that way, who is subjected to the read technique and other things. But that said, he's also a person. Uh, and he's also someone who sits in prison needlessly. Uh, and that as much as we want to care about systems and broad groups of people, this is a time too when we have a lot to learn by looking at one person uh, and learning from what went wrong and more than anything, fixing what went wrong.
So you are giving a lot of people hope by opening up this conversation. Is that your intention? Absolutely. And uh, and and not having hope when you should have hope is the wrong thing for the state of Wisconsin to stand for.